I know that I have had the experience of being the only woman in the room. And I suspect that many others here who are alumni have also had that experience. And unfortunately, many of the women coming up are also going to have that experience. The numbers just aren't changing particularly quickly for women in venture investing startups. And I think it's important for women to get to have that opportunity just to connect informally and feel less alone. That was Abigail Selden, CEO of Bluebead Foundation, one of the many inspiring speakers that we have here at the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, which is a packed full two days that convenes current Rhodes scholars, Rhodes alumni, Atlantic fellows and leaders in the international business community to discuss innovation, entrepreneurship and investment, as well as to explore how we can create ventures that improve the world. In this episode, find out more about Abigail Selden's life story and her involvement with innovative ventures. We'll be speaking about her time as a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford, the first venture she co-founded, College Abacus, and her experience as a woman in the startup world. happy to have you here, Abigail, at the third annual Rhodes Ventures Forum, and also to have you here for the podcast to talk about your life story and your involvement with Innovative Ventures. So you were a Rhodes Scholar here at the University of Oxford, where you studied for a DPhil in Social Anthropology. Do you have fond memories of your time here at Oxford? I have very fond memories of my time here at Oxford. Uh, while I didn't finish my course, I learned a great deal and um, it really set me up sort of counterintuitively in some ways to go on to do my next work. And of course, I met my husband here at Rhodes House uh, at a required event in my first term. So tell me a bit about how you went from being an aspiring anthropologist to becoming an entrepreneur. So for me, it was a bit of an accident. Uh, a lot of folks this weekend have spoken about how they always knew they wanted to be an entrepreneur and were just waiting for the right idea. For me, it was something of the opposite. The idea fell in my lap, and I had to be an entrepreneur to get it done. And so I was working on my DPhil write-up after finishing field work, and my husband, Whitney Herring-Smith, um, then my boyfriend and fellow, fellow Rhodes Scholar, had this idea that we should build what ultimately became College Abacus. And I told him, no, no, I won't help you. We're too busy. I don't want any part of this. I have to finish my DPhil. You have a full-time job. This is foolish. But then I couldn't get the idea out of my head. And then I took over the project. And we worked on it together for, for a while. And, um, and then ultimately, I led the sale of the company two years later. So it was a very fast process from start to finish. But it also was, um, was truly an accident and an at least at the beginning, I was something of an unwilling participant. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about College Abacus then. What is College Abacus? I was also wondering if you could explain for those not familiar with the US education system what a college is. What in the US is college and the UK is university. So it's post-secondary education. And so in the US, we have a sort of odd system where the amount you pay for college is sort of like what how you pay differently for an airline ticket depending on 
you know, what date you want to fly, what airline you want to fly, what time you want to fly, where you want to go. You know, even if you buy the exact same itinerary as someone else, your ticket price may be different. And in the U.S. higher education system, it's very much the same, uh, depending on where you're from, how much the school values your application, um, your financial need, your test scores, the amount that you pay for college, the rate you get on loans that you take out uh, to cover the balance, financial aid that you get that is a grant, it's all very different. And the schools, of which we have almost 4,000, um, each have full discretion about actually how they set their prices and to some extent about the kind of aid they give you and or aid they facilitate your ability to achieve. And so it used to be that and unfortunately now it is again, um, that you couldn't find out how much you were going to pay for different colleges before you were going to apply. And certainly you couldn't find out about it at one place. And so what we did with College Abacus was we drew upon a new U.S. federal requirement that compelled schools to disclose actually proper calculators on their websites that, that would show how different students would, would get financial aid. And then we created a meta-calculator unified system, which let you query all of those in real time to get your personalized estimates. And so I know you've compared College Abacus to Kayak.com before, and Kayak.com is a travel comparison website, and you sort of alluded to that just now when mm -hmm. you were talking about comparing you know, the price of tickets yes. and comparing the price of colleges. So was it the idea of this travel comparison website that inspired your approach to building the, the site that you had as College Abacus? You know, it wasn't particularly Kayak. It was more that at the time when we began doing this work in 2012, there had been a whole wave of new transparency websites around different kinds of pricing that had come to the market. There was Zillow for real estate, at least in the U.S., um, there, where you could learn about how much different housing would cost, um, you know, Kayak and Expedia for travel, um, a number of mortgage comparison sites. But in the U.S., you know, post-secondary education remained a black box, even though it's the largest expense most families actually take on in their lifetimes. Hmm. And so something quite special, I think, about College Abacus, or it certainly seemed that way to me, was that when you use it as a student or as a family of a student, the, the site details which type of calculators colleges are, are using to estimate the cost of going to that college. Why was that an important detail of College Abacus? So the, when the requirement came out from the federal government that schools needed to post net price calculators on their websites, there was a free calculator that the government provided that you could install on your college website, but there were also a number of consultancies that built calculators that were more customized and more robust. And school, some schools opted to pay for those instead and install them. Those calculators all had different quirks, and we wanted to be transparent about who was using what and, and provide just a little bit more consumer insight. Our goal was not to obscure any of the details of what the schools were doing, but rather just to make it directly comparable for consumers. So that idea of transparency, again, very much being at the core of what you were looking to do. Exactly. And so thinking about when you first set up College Abacus, 
you received funding through the Gates Foundation, I believe, um, and that was before you left Oxford. For those people just starting out, how do you go about securing funding for your next big idea? Well, so one caveat just to um, make the Gates people happy, it was actually we were a grantee of a Gates subgrant. There was a Gates funded contest, uh, which was then awarding grants to new technical tools or efforts that they thought might improve college access in the United States. Mm-hmm. And you know, for in terms of advice, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me that I think was spoken about a bit yesterday, but was important for my experience was actually not going out without a net early. You know, that I was on stipend um, first for Rhodes and then later for the loose scholarship, which I took directly afterwards was a real comfort to me while I was experimenting with college abacus. You know, so many things go wrong right out of the gate when you're doing a startup. And most of the time, you don't get the business model right right away. You, or things take longer than you expect or are beyond budget, however you've, you've found resources or even if you haven't. And so having some other support and even other professional affiliation, I think, certainly provided me more room to get my legs under me and for us to, to build a product that ultimately worked rather than the fastest one we could make. I'm interested to ask if there was any backlash from colleges who might have been resistant to the idea of college abacus. Well, I mean, I, I, I think you know that there was. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the, the, the big story for college abacus in the U.S. was a multi-year fight that we had in the media with really several hundred uh, selective schools in the United States that didn't want to be compared on the basis of price to one another. And it was, you know, frankly a PR fail on the part of the schools. If they had just ignored us, we might have actually gone away. The, the fight both improved the visibility of our product and ultimately I think the exit price of our company. Uh, we were much more prominent and visible than we would have been otherwise. It also, I think, exposed that they, that, that at least some number of schools really weren't acting in the family's best interests and that they were, and that they were open about that, I think, was really damaging to American higher education overall and its reputation publicly. Prior to our work and really the student debt crisis, certainly we're not exclusively responsible for this change. There had really been a sense in the United States that the schools were positive public actors. And, you know, through the college abacus story, among others, in the last 10 years, it's really become clear that their organizations like anybody else, like or like any other organization, you know, companies like any other company, and some of, certainly some of them are really guarding a social mission, but others are trying to make payroll, and that that's their, their dominant objective. And there's nothing wrong with trying to make payroll, um, but the level of deference that they receive, particularly around, or particularly from families making what can be a ruinous life decision financially, is somewhat unjustified in that context. So had you sort of been expecting that kind of backlash from colleges when you were setting up College Abacus? Were you prepared for that? Actually, not at all. Uh, We were not expecting backlash from colleges when we started the product, um, really in any way. My naive assumption when we built the tool had been that the lack of transparency was an accident of big bureaucracy 
and that surely all of these schools thought that families should be able to have access to this information as they made multi-decade financial plans. And so for me as well, not just you know, the public that read about our story, it was a, a bit of a shock to find that that wasn't true and that there was something else afoot. So something else that we're speaking about this weekend is the positive impact that ventures can have on people. And I want to ask about the positive human impact that College Abacus had. Did families and students get in contact with you to say thanks for building this for us? They did, actually, and that was really lovely and, and always extremely moving. Um, one of the, the things, though, that was surprising to us because we thought we were building a direct-to-consumer tool was actually the impact it had on policy. Uh, we ended up partnering with the Obama administration pretty heavily on data transparency, and they ultimately featured our product in official speeches and communications, and that, I think, broadened our impact beyond what we could do for individual families to really changing the conversation around information access and financial planning around college in the United States. Now, unfortunately, since then, with the changeover in the administration, not only have the Obama administration's efforts in that regard um, largely been shut down, college advocacy was also shut down by the folks we sold it to about two years after my departure. I was going to ask you about that process of deciding to sell College Abacus. I think you held out for a little bit because College Abacus had received a lot of attention and there was desire from quite a number of, of places to acquire College Abacus quite early on. Why did you decide to wait and then why ultimately did you decide to sell to ECMC Group? So it's interesting, actually, because at the time it felt like we waited, but in retrospect, we didn't wait very long. You know, it's not super common, even for technology products, to receive acquisition interest, you know, 18 months after starting, um, which was when we first started to get inbound interest for both investment and acquisition. Ultimately, we sold at about the two-year anniversary of starting College Abacus. And, you know, even now, actually, that the product has been shut down, I'm still very happy with that decision. We had a, a number of interested parties, and the Ultimate Acquirer ECMC Group made us a, a great offer and also had agreed to fund the continued development of the product and, and to let us maintain the mission of keeping it free and publicly available. And that opportunity let us go on to broaden our relationship with the Obama administration. It enabled me to launch a DC office for them, which was an 80% female technology and design lab. And, and we were able to do really exciting, progressive things. You know, ECMC Group, you know, is a large organization in the United States and really gave us the freedom to do that. That their priorities changed, you know, two years after I left is something I think all founders have to grapple with when they sell their company. You know, what's most unusual about the college abacus story sort of in the post-acquisition timeline is actually that I was able to retain so much control over the product um, really for two years um, with a steady funding stream and without a lot of external interference. Most of the time that happens to you as soon as you sign the contract. But anytime you sell anything, right, whether it's a bet on Craigslist um, or, you know, your company, you are giving up control and you, you have to reckon with that. And you mentioned the Innovation Lab at 
ECMC group, which had acquired College Abacus, and that was an 80% female technology and design centre. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about that 80%. Was that mm-hmm. a goal that you wanted 80% of the lab to be female? It wasn't initially. You know, it was sort of an accident. Uh, my co-founder, uh, Samantha Zucker, who was my first hire at that lab, uh, I think had more of a vision for that than I did. Uh, what we really wanted was a great place to work um, for us as well as for the other people who joined us. And we wanted folks who were passionate about the products that we were building and the social mission that we had. And it sort of initially just fell out that way that we hired a number of women. And then I think over time, that environment then attracted more qualified female candidates who thought that that would be a desirable workspace. So later on this morning, you'll be holding a women's tea. What advice will you be sharing with the women there? So my goal with the women's tea, which I'm very excited to be hosting later this morning, is really just to provide a space for the women at the forum to get together. I know that I've had the experience of being the only woman in the room, and I suspect that many others here who are alumni have also had that experience. And unfortunately, many of the women coming up are also going to have that experience. The numbers just aren't changing particularly quickly for women in venture investing startups. And I think it's important for women to get to have that opportunity just to connect informally and feel less alone. So you said before that you think startups often ignore the low-income segments of the population. Are there other segments of the population that you think are being ignored in the startup world? Certainly, and I think that that gap actually leaves a lot of opportunity for new entrepreneurs. The, you know, startups are typically designed to solve a problem that the founder sees in the world, and ideally. Certainly, if the venture is going to become self-sustaining or return investment, solving that problem has to be worth something to someone else. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why low-income populations are ignored by startups, is because it's hard to ethically make return on, on creating services. And, and so that's created a, both suites of products that are exploitative and than products that don't meet the needs of that particular population. And then, of course, there are some in the middle that I've seen that are tremendous and and really forces for change, but it's very hard to get that right. In terms of other opportunities, though, one of the things that that at least I've read about that I haven't seen personally in action is the idea that founders design products that solve their own problems. And so by definition, then, since founders, at least in the U.S., can be somewhat homogenous, there are gaps in the user experience or gaps in services that can be provided for other kinds of founders. So you're now launching a new family foundation focused on equity in American higher education. Tell us a bit about that if you can. So the Blue Bead Foundation, which still doesn't have a website because it's only a few weeks old, is going to focus on people who are not currently being served well by American higher education. So we think of them as the four horsemen of the higher ed apocalypse. People who don't complete school, people who default on their loans, student parents, and people who attend schools that shouldn't be accredited. These four groups 
are massively disadvantaged by our current system. In the United States, it's almost an article of faith that if you go to school and try hard, that you can achieve anything, and certainly that you can climb out of poverty and, and achieve a middle-class lifestyle. That's no longer true for a variety of reasons, at least not universally. Cases are more exceptional than they are routine. Now you can predict someone's economic trajectory in their life mostly just by knowing their zip code that they were born in. But those four groups that I named are particularly ill-served by our current system. And if we don't improve the situation for them, then we really won't have achieved uh, certainly anything resembling a meritocracy. There's quite a few founders of ventures here that have had previous careers to their career as an entrepreneur or have gone on to do something different after they founded a startup, for instance. If you hadn't pursued the path that you're on now, what do you think you would be doing? That's a really good question. Well, I can tell you what my plan was at the time if it didn't work. When I was initially working on College Abacus, I was ostensibly writing up my DPhil, and I was on a loose scholarship in Asia uh, to do some work on cultural heritage tourism in Hong Kong, which was fascinating work. And that had been a theme through my research as well up until that point. So my plan, if College Abacus didn't take off, which I knew was the most likely outcome, because most of these ventures do fail, was to finish my DPhil and go find a job in tourism. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. To hear more inspirational stories from the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, listen in on my conversations with other speakers in the rest of these podcast episodes. This podcast was produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. The music you heard was called Feeling Sunny by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org.